0: Hello and welcome to the M&M podcast episode number 13. Uh, I am Michael Gallagher from the Center for Research in Digital Education at Morehouse School of Education and Sport.
1: Uh, and I'm Miles Blaney. Um, I work in digital learning applications in media and learning teaching and web and information services.
0: And we're joined by a very special guest star today. Uh, Mr. Tim, uh, Dr. Tim Fawns. I'm sorry, I just stripped away your, your, your doctor. You. <laughs> Dr. Tim Fonz. Only took
2: me six years, that's
0: fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's got off to a good start already, by the way. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So, Tim, would, would it be possible to maybe introduce yourself and what program you're coming from?
2: Uh, yeah, um, so I'm Tim Fawns, and I'm a lecturer in clinical education. Um, I work primarily on the online masters in clinical education in the college of uh, medicine and veterinary medicine here at edinburgh Um, i've worked in that job for about six years and before that i was a learning technologist in the school of health and social science working in the department of clinical psychology Um, and i've also done some teaching on the masters in digital education which i think michael you do some teaching on is that right
0: that's right yeah so i teach uh Uh, One of the courses, the course design for digital environments course uh, on the MSC. You're also you're in the center as well, Tim. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I think I'm like an associate or an affiliate or something of the research center there in digital education. I'm not really sure what that means. I, I talk a lot to people over there. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> Good enough. But can you give us a, a real quick sense, Tim? Just your particular program. Like what size are we talking about there?
2: So like in uh, terms, pro-
0: it's postgraduate.
2: Yeah, it's postgraduate. Um, so and it's uh, online. Uh, we have students from around the world. At the moment, there are about just over 200 students on program, and they are mostly healthcare practitioners who teach other health pre care practitioners so it'll be doctors who are teaching doctors and nurses who are teaching nurses um occupational therapists teaching each other you know all the all the different healthcare disciplines um and they will come together um in essentially three courses per year so they'll be they'll be studying part-time and they'll be working mostly full-time and they need the program needs to be quite flexible to work around their needs, and, and we'll see as we talk about the pandemic how you know how difficult it is to kind of fit around people's professional needs, especially when they're healthcare practitioners. Um, Interesting, uh, but it's always been like that because of shifts and and the high stakes and high pressures of healthcare practice. Um, so our particular model is not reliant on people having to always be in a particular place at a particular time, um, and we can talk a bit more about that later. So essentially the structure is that they have three first-year courses in the, f- um, in the first year. Uh, they are principles of teaching and learning, uh, a course about assessment and a course about curriculum, and then in the second year um, they have optional courses and a research methods course, and then in the third year there's a research dissertation.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So I think that's a good segue. I think, uh, we can frame this around the pandemic and we can frame this around the quote unquote pivot online, but we're really starting to look a little bit, uh, cast our gaze a little bit more towards the fall at the university and, uh, the probability of us teaching all, if not a large majority of our courses online or being prepared to do so. Uh, and, I think Tim, you had mentioned a bit about framing this around the idea of like a pastoral concerns, and I wonder if you can expand on that a little bit. What do you, what do you mean by pastoral concerns in that in that context, and what what does it look like online?
2: Yeah, so right now, I think it's important for all of all educators to recognize this as a crisis of health and a crisis of mental health, and also a crisis of logistics and practicalities. So. Both staff and students are in a really messy space at the moment, um, juggling with study, teaching, other forms of work, forms of care um, for other people in the household or or caring for people outside of the household, Um, kind of childcare and family responsibilities and and maintaining a household. and, And all of these competing pressures all acting at the same time and in the same, you know, confined spaces. So essentially education cannot just carry on as it did before because it has to recognise that students and staff are not just in a difficult place but but in a sort of unpredictable place. Everyone is in a different situation. So the one thing that's weird about this pandemic, I think, is that you have groups of people who are absolutely flat out really really busy and stressed and you have other groups of people who have kind of who are unable to do all the things they were doing before and the work that they were doing before and actually have kind of too much time on their hands but are also Mm. stressed and you have everything in between um and so it's very difficult to know where the students are at and where the staff are at and so just kind of assuming that Things can continue as they did before, but online is really problematic because we, I think, have a responsibility to find out how our students are and to really make sure everyone stays safe and healthy as possible during the pandemic. So taking the pressure off, I think, is actually one of our key roles at this time.
0: Interesting. Yeah, so I think that sort of segues nicely into that second point about What does this taking the pressure off look like? What is that lowering? I mean, what I think you had said is the lowering of expectations on staff and students not trying to get the same outcomes as we were aiming for before. What what might that look like in terms of uh, actual ongoing practice online? Well, if I... How would you you necessarily sort of reduce those expectations?
2: If I start out by talking about the experience of our program, I think that that's maybe the smartest place for me to start because I know it well and I and I can talk to it, and then we can start to move on to other contexts. But it's important to recognise that the program I teach on is postgraduate, and it was already online. Um, so that's a that's quite different from the people who have had to suddenly pivot online, and, and it's different from undergraduate, and it's different from. These like sort of large face-to-face campus-based courses having to suddenly change. Um, we were already online, and, and so there's there are some significant advantages for us at the moment um, compared to other people's contexts. Anyway, um, the other the other side of that is that all of our students are healthcare practitioners, and so almost all of them are suddenly having to work in different circumstances and very stressful circumstances. And they they can't really predict their study patterns and the patterns of available time that they have. Um, so the first thing we did was we tried to make sure it was okay to essentially give them some kind of blanket extension if they needed it. So anyone who needs more time to get their assessed work in, um, we reassured them that they would be able to get that. And fortunately, the university's been very good at backing us up um, by setting in place some principles. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but the the no disadvantage principle. What's that called?
0: It's a good I'm not from I'm not hundred percent for that one yeah.
2: either. Oh right. Um, I, I hope I'm not speaking out of school, but there's there's work on um, developing a principle that, that students won't be adversely negatively disadvantaged oh. by assessment in this period so for example yes yes where you yes. uh where you were going to have exams the sort of substitute assessment will not um end up in you having a lower average than you had before
0: yeah um, so I think, I,
1: announced- out- yeah, I think that was announced yeah i think i was included in the the information that was sent out by the principal and
0: that's right yeah. that's right yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't realize it actually had a formal a name. Yeah, to yeah, it. yeah.
1: It, it does, but I've
2: I've misnamed it. So sounds <laughs> <laughs> I the if that the homework. Homework.
0: <laughs> You coined it. You coined it now. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, so the university's been good at um, kind of taking that stance of of making sure that people don't end up with bad marks on the basis of trying to cope with a pandemic. But the other side of it is making sure that we know that the students know that they can have more time and that there are various options. So essentially, what we did was we extended the time period of these courses so that where the deadline was for us, the end of April, actually it can be kind of any time after that, hopefully before the exam board at the end of May, but maybe even after that. Um, And that rather than just stopping the course at that first deadline, we will keep running tutorials and we will keep contacting the students and we'll basically just stretch out the course so that um, students can kind of do it at varying paces. Now there are there are difficulties there about students keeping in touch with each other because we find that the online community that we've developed is, is actually critical to the quality of our program and the experiences that students have. So we're still working on, That and I think that that'll be one of the points I'd want to make, as well is that the planning stage doesn't stop at you know once the course starts. The planning stage in in this pandemic anyway has to just keep going because you have to keep readjusting your
1: expectations. Um, So, so Tim, can I ask a quick question? So the you know if you weren't if you weren't in a pandemic a pandemic the current pandemic phase that we're in right now, if you weren't in this situation, do you think that the, the kind of planning, like you said, there is is always changing for the pandemic, but do you think for online, it's always kind of evolving anyway? And is that just because of the technology or is that because of the community that you're trying to create and it has to meet different kind of needs and requirements?
2: Um, I think there are different ways of approaching it. Our particular model that we use is pretty fluid. So the planning stage does continue because um, we 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 basically talk to our students as much as possible. And part of that talk is, you know, um, actually talking about the program and the educational approaches and how people are finding it and then listening to them and making adjustments where appropriate. And an easy example is, So we have weekly tutorials in Adobe Connect, so as a a video conferencing software. And where we discover that that timing isn't good for a lot of people, we will try to find alternative times and and things like that. And and we'll do that halfway through a course if we discover that that's what's needed. Um, We will make various changes to content and activities and things. Also, as we go, as we kind of figure out that, what students need is actually slightly different from what we'd thought before. But there is a balance because people also want a bit of structure and they want to be able to plan their time um, at the start of the course. So we try not to throw throw everything out, although actually we have some different models. So we've got a course at the moment in um, digital cultures in clinical education, and that's a sort of emergent course where we, we figure out what we should do Along with the students as we go, and and so there's there's different approaches. Um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is there's a balance, and it sort of depends on who your students are, what they need, and what you're trying to achieve.
0: Yeah, it's a good point, Tim, that about the flexibility issue, uh, the need to be flexible, specifically in these online spaces. It's a, uh, it's 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 there. Constantly, and we we've had several disruptions this term. Not, not only the pandemic, but the industrial action before that. Uh, and so, we've done something similar. I think we've, I mean, at least I have in my course. I've extended it, scheduled extra tutorials, and a few drop-in sessions for people just to air air some concerns or you know just talk about any how they're feeling in that moment and whether or not the assessment is really their priority or or these sorts of things. So it required a little bit of flexibility, I think, uh, without trying to be too onerous, without making these things uh, mandatory, uh, just making them optional opportunities for a little contact time, as you know, it seems to seems to work relatively well.
2: Yeah, I, I think you've nicely brought me back to the question I didn't answer properly before, which was the, <laughs> the lowering of expectations, because we, I think we need to be flexible with students and These activities, yeah, I really do think they need to be optional because of the just unpredictable and sometimes really, really difficult circumstances that students are in. So, I, you know, I generally don't think you can force students to engage in the particular way that you want them to in online learning. So, you have to give them different ways of engaging and you have to be okay with them engaging in a way that's not the one you chose for them sometimes. But all of that flexibility. Um, is quite onerous on the teachers, and here I think we also need to lower expectations because if you think, okay, the staff are coping with a pandemic and all of the things that go along with that, and they suddenly need to teach online, not having done so before, perhaps, and we still need them to achieve the same things, you know, the same learning outcomes and the same quality and, and everything that that they had before, and in their face-to-face or on-campus courses, then we're just asking too much. um, And we're probably asking too much of the students to actually deliver those learning outcomes, if you want to put it that way. So Mm. essentially, if we make our priority, making sure that everyone is actually okay at the end of this, um, and we make the kind of the educational stuff beyond the outcomes, making, making sure that we promote, civic responsibility and social justice and all the sorts of things that i think the university stands for but but can get lost in the the kind of curriculum specification of particular programs i think that's key and then we do our best with the the sort of formal curriculum stuff we but but we we don't expect that students will be able to produce the same amount or quality of work and we don't expect that teachers will be able to produce the same amount or quality of teaching.
0: It's really interesting, you know, that and how that, I mean, we don't necessarily have to jump into it if we don't want to, but how that relates to assessment, I'm thinking primarily here as you're talking about extending the term and I've, I've given extensions to, I mean, at this point, it's probably about half the students. Uh, Maury house had given everybody a blanket, you know, one week extension, and then extensions on top of that uh, a week uh, at the discretion of the faculty member and then anything more than that requires some sort of formal concession process but i find myself in the midst of grading and struggling uh, i guess philosophically almost to apply a numeric score to the work i'm reviewing uh, in l- knowing that it was being produced in this in this uh, you know horrific Uh, circumstances. I don't know. Has it changed your thinking on assessment, I suppose, as a lowering of expectations?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I was in an unusual place in my thinking on assessment anyway, um, because I'm not that fond of grades um, in the first place. I, I don't really I think I think that they have a use, um, and they're sort of necessary for the system that we have. Um, but I never think that a sixty-three is definitely a sixty-three. You know, I kind of think this is just <laughs> indicative of some sort of perspective on quality. Um, but without you know, without getting too far down that rabbit hole, um, yes, I do think that this makes us reevaluate thinking about grading and assessment and feedback, because you sort of need to value slightly different things. And I'd make the same point about evaluation of teaching. I think you need to evaluate teaching in response to slightly different goals from the ones you had before. So, you know, a goal of teaching or, or a marker of the quality of teaching now might be less about whether learners produced good work at the end of it or whatever, and more about whether actually – you made sure everyone was okay, you you were you took care of people, you didn't put people in untenable positions, you didn't overly marginalise or discriminate against people who were already in difficult circumstances and you maintained a sort of enthusiasm and motivation for learning. You know, those, those kind of goals might become more important than the outcomes in the current situation. Um, on assessment, I think that, we need to have a good think and talk about whether whether it's all about the quality of the end product or, or whether we need to think also about the, the process and maybe reflect upon what other things could be learned from um, from having to actually engage in assessment rather than the specific learning outcomes that were specified before the pandemic.
0: What, can can you expand on that a little bit Tim the part about uh, what we can learn from assessment above and beyond the learning outcomes like what would that be what what would you be trying to determine
2: well here I, take a step back for a second and think about one of the one of the things I think we want to do in university is not just teach people subject content and subject knowledge but but also instill in them values and uh, instill in them capacity to learn to continue learning beyond graduation because actually if you think about what you learned content wise at university it probably doesn't look that similar to the kind of content knowledge that you have now around that same domain having done you know practice professional practice for a while what's maybe more important is the way that university helped you Develop your capacity to learn, so that you could continue learning in um, the complex settings of workplaces and, and life in general. So, if we think about, you know, the the idea about university helping us learn to learn, then some of the reflections about how this pandemic influences our study habits and our learning can be really useful in generating insights about ourselves and what we value and how we go about things. Um, you know, how, how we can make use of constrained resources and all of that sort of thing. And I think the same is true of, of reflecting on teaching. I think the pandemic and the need to suddenly change all of our teaching practices can actually teach us a fair bit about teaching what's important, what do we really, you know, what do we focus on in these conditions.
1: So, so can I ask a quick question? Ahead, Sorry, um, So I think you're you're touching on the point there, and completely agree about institutional values and 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 and, uh, and people university creating people that um, can facilitate learning and you know uh, and thinking about things and uh, when they leave and um, the capacity to learn. So you know and 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 I know we're talking about the transition with the pandemic to an online environment and maybe you know how teaching within a classroom contains lots of more kind of. Hidden practices, or the art of teaching with people, Um, and can that be? You know, can that stuff be easily translated to an online environment? Um, You know, can can these practices be formalized for online teaching, or is this something that's you know difficult? I guess um, I guess it'd be useful to
2: get a clearer sense of what you mean by the 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 hidden practices of on-campus teaching?
1: So it, it just might be like um, like contact time or, you know, like a, a meaningful or meaningless interaction with a student and an academic because just because you can you can meet somebody doesn't mean that that, um, that meeting's been useful or not. Some people meet people and they don't take any information at all. I am one of those people. Um, so whether it's been, if it's been useful or not for the student to actually have that time um, or, or whether it's not being useful for them to have that time as well, and whether, you know, it's it's like kind of like coincidence, like something that's said that you might think about and might change your perspective, you know, maybe that's coincidentally said in an off comment with somebody with with an academic or not, and whether all these kind of weird things that happen in a class, and in, in a in a teaching environment, in a in a physical environment, whether they can be replicated for an online environment.
2: Yeah, so I think one of the interesting things about teaching online is that you suddenly your teaching practice gets examined by you and by other people Mm -hmm. in a close fashion that doesn't always happen in traditional modes of teaching. And so I think it can also expose some of the kind of hidden assumptions and maybe even myths about face to face teaching. So if you talk about contact time, um, okay, you might be in the same room as a teacher. For an hour or two hours in a face-to-face class, but that 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 doesn't mean you're having really sort of in-depth um, focused attention from that tutor and, and rich dialogue. It doesn't. It doesn't mean the teacher is paying you that much attention. Uh, in online learning, I think it's clearer that actually learning doesn't just happen during those scheduled sessions, but it kind of spills out. Um, and so you can kind of follow up conversations outside of of a formal tutorial, um, and you can actually get quite a lot of contact with teachers and with peers over a large period of time because the boundaries aren't so d- clearly defined. You know, the the students you know in a in a traditional face to face class probably don't talk to the lecturer that much outside of the lecture and they probably don't talk to the lecturer that much inside of a lecture or a tutorial (laughs) Um, but in an online course actually because you sort of make different channels of communication available and and things become a little bit more stretched out and asynchronous actually you can have these long conversations over a period of time and what we found on our program is that we get to know the students very well better than we ever got to know students in face-to-face teaching that we did um, and that the social aspect of online learning can be very strong. And in a lot of cases, I think stronger than your sort of traditional face-to-face classes. So I think online teaching can expose some assumptions about both online and face-to-face teaching that, that actually just don't get interrogated enough in education, I think.
0: I would agree with that. I think some of that is coming out in different uh, projects I know the work Tim you're doing and some of the projects we've had uh, miles as part of our work together uh, you know we have a project on automation uh, that we're exploring and what it's how it surfaces various very specific narratives of what teaching is and what quote unquote good teaching is and what it looks like. Uh, and a lot of these are, are in some cases ideals that are not necessarily uh, substantiated in a, in a physical classroom. So it's this the ideal of teaching as opposed to the often lived reality that the students experience in these lecture halls. Uh, Being online, Tim is absolutely right. Being online exposes that, exposes those narratives uh, quite clearly, and it really does put pressure on existing practices. I mean, it becomes very stark. I think uh, that social residue, I think, of the digital environment. And Tim, you in your program, I know you do a lot of. Uh, I mean, I don't know what you would refer to it specifically, but like community building, cohesion, coherence kind of work, a social uh, kind of activity. Can you give us an example of what you mean by that? Like how how are you building that in to the program?
2: Yeah, so that's something that we've spoken a lot about as a program team. And I guess um, the fact that we have uh, a kind of dedicated team on our program that who aren't, too badly kind of distracted and drawn into a multitude of programs like I know some people are you know our focus is the masters of clinical education and that allows us to have a lot of conversations about our approach across the program and so through that and through sort of changing um, ideas and developments we end up with this process where we're very good at talking to applicants and prospective applicants on the program and we kind of get to know our applicants before they've even finished the application process and we help them through that. And then when they join the program, we have two weeks of induction where we set up activities for them to get to know each other, talk a little bit about their lives and their work and what they want out of the program and all of that in order to get um, this dialogue happening. And then we try to maintain that as much as we can through the program keep them in touch with each other. We do things outside of the formal courses like the occasional webinar and the occasional meeting online for you know who's, who's coming on to second year and, and who's going from second year to third year. And then uh, we see them at graduation or we talk to them um, online. And then after graduation, we keep them involved. We bring people back in to do little bits of teaching or, or dissertation supervision we put graduates in touch with potential applicants to say here's like, let's say we have an applicant from Japan. We'll say, we know someone in your area who's done the program. Would you like to talk to them? Um, So we put, we, we kind of finish that circle um, by putting graduates in touch with applicants. So we really try and build a community, not just within a course, but across the program and, um, and afterwards, and we're, you know, right now during the pandemic, we're keeping in touch with graduates to find out what life is like for them and getting some really interesting um, conversations back with people who graduated five years ago. So it's sort of, it really runs right through our program.
0: That's really fascinating. So you've expanded, I mean, the scope of this social activity expands from well before coming on to the program and clearly well, well past. After, yeah.
2: Yeah, and it's useful because when you talk to people who have graduated, um, then you can find out what they actually learned on the program and how that's being applied in their practice.
0: Interesting. So, Do you find that, that investment – I'm sorry, Miles, but did you find that investment in social – this sociality, for lack of a better term, this community uh, building activity, do you find you could re- – do you find that had an effect? I guess when the, when the pandemic kicked off, when these stressful times, it was did it give you something to rely on there that you could draw from?
2: Definitely, um, it's been brilliant before the pandemic, in, in any kind of uncertainty and chaos. So, like one one really key point that actually I would like to make for anyone who's listening is. If you can develop that community and the sort of trusting relationships with your students, then they forgive you when things don't go well. So when the technology fails, actually our, the students are on our side just like we are on the students' side. Um, so, you know, if, if something breaks, then we all – you know, we all just think, "Oh, that that's okay," because we still like each other. You know, it, it, <laughs> technology technological failure is much worse when you don't have a trusting relationship and you can't really be open and honest and talk.
1: But transparency, isn't it? I think that's what you're. I think that's what it sounds like. It sounds like it's very transparent and open. So there is like that that give and take.
2: Yeah, and also when we're when we when we don't do something well, you know, when we're operating. Um, outside of our comfort zone we can be honest about that too and the students can can be part of that journey with us so uh, the community thing is massive in terms of of everyone being okay when things aren't perfect um Mm -hmm. and so in the pandemic that that's even more so you know we say to the students we're we're absolutely understanding when you can't do your best and they say the same to us. And so everyone is just sort of muddling it through it together and, and really the teachers and the students are as much as is possible
1: on the same side all the time. But like you're saying there it's beneficial for both of these as well to be to be open because you guys can reflect and, and refine and uh, the students get a better outcome from it as well. So it's I think that sounds great. And that that community sounds fantastic compared to, you know, some of the myths you hear about how online learning happens where someone sits in front of a computer for an hour and learns and then logs off and that's it done. It sounds like... Which is...
0: Yeah, which is a good deal of it, though. I mean, I think what uh, Tim is describing is a much more progressive kind of yeah, approach. Yeah, um, uh, To the community building becomes that... Co- not a surrogate for for teacher student contact, but it becomes an extension of that contact, and that distance is sort of mitigated in that result. And you can rely on it in these in these moments. Tim, I almost find that's a really interesting point about the you know if the technology fails and uh, and if you have that trust built in already, it's not only is it forgiven, I almost find that it's like endearing. On some level that you're not necessarily going out of your way to fail, like with the new technology, but your willingness to try something new and be outside your comfort zone is almost in some way, uh, strangely, I don't know, for lack of a better word, strangely like intimate, like it's building that kind of coherence in the community, even by itself, even the failure.
2: Well, I guess, interestingly, the failure of technology can highlight the humanity in the course, because um, it, it sort of... Yeah, it, it highlights what's actually going on here. And what's actually going on here is people talking to people about concepts. And, in, and uh, the technology hopefully facilitates that. But when it breaks, then you sort of need to be able to adjust. And if everyone stays calm, then you can do that much more easily. So, you know, if, if we tried to do something that was fairly polished, but actually the technology wasn't going to work, Um, then we could move to something less polished and everyone would still be okay because the principles would still be intact. You know, basically it's still us talking to students about some aspect of their,
1: of their education. And, and this is like, do you think sometimes that we are looking for, you know, the because there's that fear of it's, it's gone wrong. Why did it go wrong? And, and, you know we we kind of sometimes want something as over polished that we're scared of going online because it has to be perfect for that experience is that a hindrance to us do you think sometimes i think it is this goes back to the
2: lowering of expectations of you, you know it doesn't need to be polished especially i don't i don't really think it ever needs to be that polished um our our, <laughs> our ethos is not about delivering polished education to our students um it's sort of just kind of figuring it out together and especially like, now when everything everyone's operating under such challenges I think polish is the enemy of, of what we're trying to achieve here we just need yeah. to figure
1: this out and I would say life's not polished so you know we shouldn't be trying to yeah. replicate something that's just not real
0: yeah it's like the uh, perfection being the enemy of good uh, in, in this moment and uh, what you spoke a little bit about Tim, there made me think a little bit about like what is the purpose of the curriculum? The curriculum as praxis versus the curriculum as product. Mm. And I think I find some some programs that are a little bit more aligned with the product model. That perfection of delivery becomes a little bit more uh, of greater importance. But if your if your curriculum your curricular objective is largely around pr- uh, practice. And I think the polish isn't as important as the dialogue that exists within those spaces.
2: Yeah, that's exactly. right. And I guess the same is true for coverage. You know, I don't think this is the time to worry too much about whether we've covered all the content that, that people think yeah. really important, that we're not going to be able to do that. So we need to focus on helping people develop what they need in order to, to get that later.
0: Excellent. I think this seems like a good space to sort of wind it up a little bit. I wanted to end, if at all possible, uh, and mention uh, that we have a, a training program running uh, starting on the 27th at the University of Edinburgh. Tim is working with myself on it, and we're very, very honored to have him on board, executing maybe some of the things that he's talking about here, uh, along with many others from from the medical school we're very fortunate to have on board uh, and a lot of this will cover things like engaged community building and engaged online teaching. The whole emphasis being on on engaged uh, uh, to to satisfy some of these these pastoral concerns and provide some of this dialogue and support that we're looking to have. So that kicks off very soon. And uh, thanks very much, Tim, for agreeing to be a part of it. And thanks very much for being on this podcast.
2: Hey, welcome! Thanks for a, an interesting
0: conversation, and I hope it was helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess we'll sign off. I'm going to this is Michael Gallagher signing off uh, and Miles Blaney. And until next time.